It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, is a topic that is relevant today more than ever before. Whatever you define DEI to be, or if you lead initiatives within your organization, it's an essential part of our growth and a topic everyone should be focused on. On this episode of The Big Rethink, we speak with Cheryl Harris, a tenured DEI advocate, leadership coach, an author, and in full transparency, a good friend. Cheryl will provide insights into her head, heart, and hand approach to support inclusive organizations and encourages human beings to flourish through intellectual understanding, emotional response, and action. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be with you. So so first of all, um, congratulations on the book. That's such a huge topic, and we're going to get to that. But um, that's really, really exciting. I'm really happy for you. I know that it was a big undertaking, so uh, congrats on that. Thank you so much. As you know, it was a lifelong work, it seems. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So Cheryl, DEI, I mean, it's obviously an important topic to you and obviously to me personally as well. Well, so, you know, I'm really looking forward to sort of this conversation to create sort of a better understanding of its impact. But before we dive in, you know, you've had such a diverse sort of an interesting career, including many different positions. I'm wondering if you can just give our listeners a sort of a a short peek into your journey and sort of, you know, what you're up to today. Yeah, thanks for that question. It's great to be here with you to talk about the book and my background. I started out. Uh, in diversity, equity, inclusion way back in the late 80s. And I uh, moved from that introduction to diversity when we were integrating an organization by growth uh, and bringing in more. It was pretty much a homogenous organization, all white, and we brought in people of color. And then we had to learn what were some of the opportunities and the challenges with that kind of workforce and this was before we were really using the term diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that was my beginning. And then I became a managing consultant at a um, consulting firm that focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which allowed me to go into many more corporations within the country and in the UK. Uh, subsequently, I was... Uh, in the church, and I became an ordained American Baptist minister, went to seminary, and um, that really was my heart's desire to take that theological grounding combined with the diversity experiences and look for ways to make the world a better place where we could all contribute uh, our best selves in this world. And I, what I learned is that in the workplace, we could have integration and diversity, while in our neighborhoods, we were still pretty much segregated, even in our United States of America. So the workplace became a great um, venue in which to do this work, which would be harder to do in neighborhoods that were pretty much segregated. So that's my cascade uh, into this work, diversity, equity, inclusion. I started my own firm in 2004. Uh, Cheryl Harrison Associates Inc. and that, and I've been doing work in this arena with 
corporate and not-for-profit organizations since then. Yeah, I mean, it, it is such an amazing background. And I mean, you touch on a lot of different things. But, you know, I think we would agree, you know, knowing you as well as I do, that, you know, one of the biggest undertaking was your book, Divinity, Diversity, Dialogue, Listening and Learning Our Way to the Beloved Community. Talk to us a little bit about that. What inspired you to write? Like, I mean, it's not, you had enough on your plate. So so what was it about this that really got you to want to write the book? Yeah, from the time I went to seminary, I believe that if the church could lead, the Christian community could lead, then we could make tremendous progress in society on bringing people together. Because if we come with this premise that we are all equal, we're made by one divine creator, then it was a great foundation and commonplace to jump off into So how do we befriend one another? How do we work together? How do we uh, eliminate oppressive behaviors and things that separate us? So I had this vision that I could take this seminary education, this diversity experience and expertise, and bring it to the church and teach the, have the church members and Christians lead in these conversations about diversity and racial equity. But I have to tell you, Brian, I hit a wall. It was hard. The church was not ready to do it. There was a lot of fear and um, hesitation. But I still felt like this was work that needed to be done. And I was learning with my approach and methods that organizations were taking this topic on and they were making inroads in great strides, bringing in more diverse populations, having more opportunities for people to get promoted, um, opening the way for thinking to be embraced that was different. There's enough studies that have shown that heterogeneous groups outperform homogeneous groups if we are willing to deal with the conflict and the challenges of difference. So all of that continued to fuel my dream that we could have a beloved community and see each other as equals across race and begin to hear one another. But I didn't get the encouragement necessarily from the church community because there was still, as I said, this fear and this hesitation. But in the organizations, they they were much quicker and more willing to take it on. So all of that, I started the book back in 2010, and then it lay dormant. It lay dormant for 10 years. A friend of mine, a dear friend who's also a writing coach, posted on Facebook that he was looking for 20 writers to coach. That was back in uh, 2020. I jumped onto that, and he and I began to work, and I thought I was going to write something else. But I was led to go back to the book I started 10 years prior, which was Divinity, Diversity, and Dialogue. And as you know, in 2020, we had that momentous event of the George Floyd murder. And so while I thought the time had passed, it was absolutely the right time. And I was fueled to finish it because I felt like this is the way 
to cut through some of the barriers and the inhibitions that people have by having dialogue, learning how to have conversations without checking out. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up a couple of really interesting points, you know, bringing people together. I think that's what we all are striving to do. And that's one of the biggest things that we all want to try to accomplish. But the reality of that is there is an element of fear that sits there, right? Um, But that said, you know, if we all stopped at what we're fearful of, we would never make the progress that we need in order to tackle this, right? This is a difficult and a challenging conversation to have. DEI is not something that is, you know, just a, a, a textbook approach. There's many different thoughts and feelings and emotions that all roll into that. But I, I think having a fear of it, and, and you've experienced this firsthand, isn't a reason to stop. It's actually, in my opinion, the reason to continue. Um, and, and I know that, you know, that that's an important element. And I, and I know that's a big focus for you. So I, I love that that's kind of where you're, where you're at and what led you to, to get to this point. Yeah, it's so true, Brian. I'm so glad you're doing this work because it is true that we fear what we don't know. And then the thing with diversity, equity, inclusion, which is hard, is that we have to learn in public. And adults don't want to do that, right? We want to say, I know what I'm doing. I look poised and I look like I have my act together. But with diversity, we don't often have our acts together. We don't know enough about the topic and racial differences to feel confident. So that lack of confidence uh, added to learning in public just fuels more of the fear of being embarrassed or not being seen as knowledgeable. And then people pull away from it. So what I try to do in the book is to um, make it clear what some of the barriers are to having dialogue and how to combat those barriers or how to overcome them. So, for example, in um, this learning in public, there has to be this awareness, personal awareness of what our own values are, our beliefs and what it is that we want to achieve. If we're clear about our values and our beliefs, that can help us to overcome the resistance to tackling something that we don't know that much about. So if I believe that we all have a right to be here, if I believe that everyone should have an opportunity to do their best and to make contributions, then that can override my fear or my fight or flight syndrome to you know run away because I'm more committed to this value and this belief. And if I know that that I have hot buttons, if I'm aware of what those are, or triggers that cause me to feel guilty or ashamed or angry, then I can develop some emotional intelligence to address that so that I don't run away and can mature in the conversation. So these are some of the um, issues that I think we have to confront and stay in it. And recognize that diversity is no different than any other business proposition we handle in the business world. So we learn about it. We make some mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. We make adjustments and we keep going. But we don't stop. So is it the same, Cheryl? So, I mean, I know you spend a ton of time counseling business leaders, right? Um, and, and you know, you also spend a lot of time with community involvement, specifically in House of Worship. Is the process uh, to sort of a successful DEI model the same in both of those environments or, or does it actually differ? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. What's the same and what's different? So in the workplace, Thankfully, the workplace has changed to some degree, right? Uh, in the past, the workplace said, um, just bring your title or your role to the job and leave the rest of you out. Not ho- Don't come in holistically. But the workplace has changed. And now they say, bring your whole self. And there's a recognition of what we call intersectionality, which is um, one can be a race, a gender, sexual orientation. Um, all of that makes up the combination, the culmination of a whole person. And that whole person operates in the world, has experiences in the world that come into the workplace. So there's a recognition more about this whole person as opposed to just the CEO or just the director or just the VP. So in that sense, it is the same. We want the whole person, your emotions, your passions, your intellect, your cognitive ability to come in and your awareness of the need for forgiveness and for apology and for um, ex- exercising your right to speak. And that may not be in the way that I think, right? So we may have disagreements, and that's okay not to fear that. So I think in those ways, Brian, it's the same. And um, that's what I'm trying to debunk, this mythology that we need a special sort of dispensation to deal with diversity. No, we need a similar one that says, I, I respect your right to speak your truth from your perspective. And I understand that you see the world through a different lens than I do. Here we are. I'm a black woman. You're a white male. We see the world differently, but we can both grow from those different perspectives and have robust conversation that helps us build relationship of respect. Yeah, I think it boils down to respect, right? I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, to your point, we're all human. Um, we all, you know, get up the same way every day. We go about our lives. We all care about individuals. We care about our families. We all do. But it really does boil down to just a need for us to respect one another at a certain and agree on a certain level of respect, regardless of whether we agree or disagree. There still should be that element of respect that is always present because we are human beings and and we would want to treat ourselves, uh, others, as we would nor- as we would want them to treat us. I mean, it's it's sort of a basic concept when you really boil it down. It is a basic concept, and I'm glad you said that. You talked about that's the golden rule, right, which is recognized in most other religions, just about every one of them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what I unpack in the book are these what I call power rules. So the golden rule is one that we've lived by without challenge for eons, but then there's something called the platinum rule, because the golden rule says you and I are similar. We think the same. We want the same things. Do unto others as I, you would have them do unto you. The platinum rule says do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And that then requires us to get to know one another because I cannot do unto you the way you would have me do unto you unless I know more about what you um, favor and what you find offense with. So that's another step towards building a more 
um, intellect around diversity. So there's the golden rule, the platinum rule, and then something I've created called the iridium rule. And iridium is this very strong metal. It's corrosive. Um, and the only thing that uh, can address it is salt, uh, which I love because you know, the salt shall not lose its favor. You know, the biblical perspective that salt is a curing agent. But the iridium rule says don't do for others what they can do for themselves. And and that is to that's the respect part because it's disrespectful to step in and say, Oh, I'll write that report for you. I know you're too busy. Or, oh, I'll step in. Let me tell you what you meant by what you just said. Or what Brian really intended with that comment was blah, blah, blah. So the, the Iridium rule recognizes that we step in when needed or invited, but not when we're uncomfortable for the other person. So don't do for others what they can do for themselves. And those three rules together have to operate interchangeably in order to really have the kind of respectful, inclusive conversation that I'm hoping that people will have. Yeah. So, so let's talk about, you know, you, you've obviously, we talked to background, you've talked a little bit about community, we've talked about corporate, but you decided to focus on corporate organizations, right? For the training that you do. You know, obviously, we know there's the, a reason for DI initiatives in that setting, but why, why corporate? Why was that the focus that you decided to really pursue? Yeah, be, thank you for that question. The reason I wanted to focus on corporate, first of all, is an area I know well because I've been in the corporate arena most of my professional career, um, and I've sat with CEOs and in the C-suite advising. Also, there were just people. People would say to me often, oh, well, you're going to work with rocket scientists? Well, that's going to be a tough group. They're people. They have families. They have lives. They care about one another. And for the most part, we all want to do the right thing. And in the corporation, that has the, um, the most potential to change the quality of life for people. And unfortunately, we still don't have the level of diversity in corporations that we could possibly have. There's still some difficulty for people of color and women to get into those doors. LGBTQ, it's still challenging. People still can't be fully themselves. Um, and corporations have the uh, opportunity to make the change and the motivation to make the change, because it's not just about doing the right thing, although that's a huge driver, doing the right thing, treating people with respect and equally. It also affects the bottom line. And if you're more successful because of heterogeneous thinking, because of these differences coming together, there's a bigger opportunity to make the inroads. So, so I like to be successful. I like to do work that has some return on it. And when I go into corporations, I get that um, that result. And that excites me and makes way for others, other people of color to be successful and not to have to assimilate into one model of leadership, communication, uh, style of working, which I think is also important. And corporations... Um, 
can be, not all of them, but many of them are willing to embrace that. Yeah, you mentioned um, listening as being a major element sort of in terms of this approach and and allowing people um, the opportunity to have a voice. And in the book, you specifically mention as part of the process that leaders actually need to commit to listening without shaming or blaming. And I really, really love that. But you you take it one step further and you use an acronym, R-E-A-L, REAL. Um, can can you talk to the team a little bit and those listening a little bit about what that acronym actually stands for? Yeah, for sure. I coined that many a while, so many years ago, more than 10, 15 years ago, keep it real, that in order to have the conversations about race that we want to have, we have to have a real conversation. So this acronym REAL represents uh, respect, and taking responsibility for yourself and then engaging in the conversation in a way that invites dialogue. And the thing about dialogue is that you enter it without an end point necessarily. So it's not a sort of neat, tied up conversation. It can be open-ended. So in, to engage and embrace that process trusting the process. And then the A is to to be authentic, to be to be your true self, not um, who you think people want you to be, not speaking in the way you think people want you to speak. So the authenticity is critical. And then the last um, letter L, I coined leaned in before anyone else did. So lean into discomfort and to listen. To not just listen to what's being said to you, but to listen to your listening. Like even now as I'm talking, somebody may be drifting off a moment thinking about, oh, did I turn off the stove or is the iron on? But So to listen to your listening and come back in. And by listening to your listening, you're able to identify when you start to feel that discomfort. And uh, so often we make choices. When we start to feel uncomfortable, we either decide to check out, we're still there physically, but emotionally and psychologically we've left the room, or we can decide to lean in and check out why is this making me uncomfortable? What is being said in this moment that's triggering me? Is it something from my family of origin, my early years, or is there something happening in this moment that is bothering me? Because oftentimes with racial discomfort, it isn't what's happening right here, right now. It's something that you learned or you experienced in your past that you drag into the present. And that's the work that we have to unpack to move us away from stereotypes, preconceived notions, to take us out of the thought that we have this fixed way of thinking about people and to allow ourselves, what I I love Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset, to allow ourselves to grow and learn and change. That's the listening and learning our way toward the beloved community. So real is, and I start every workshop with that set of agreements because it helps people to set expectations and then to begin to test what thoughts they might have or um, to explore some old unexamined 
thoughts and address implicit bias. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some of your words, because this this is actually a, a piece from the book that actually really struck me. And you had said, the power of dialogue lies in deep listening and a desire to understand before seeking to be understood. And then you follow that on um, with to know what we hear requires listening to others, but to hear what we know requires nothing from us. For me, that was so powerful because it really is in that dialogue process. And in order, I think the challenge around some of these conversations and some of these more difficult conversations is when we don't truly listen to the dialogue that's happening and we tend to check ourselves out because then you only half listen and you only listen to what you're familiar with. And the real challenge here in growth, in my opinion, is really to, to listen to the pieces that you're not familiar with and understand where that comes from. So for me, that was just such a powerful couple of sentences um, that really resonated sort of as I was, I was reading through the book. But from a thought leadership perspective, Perspective, you know, can you share with us how so, how organizational leaders sort of can express that commitment um, and and sort of to their work around DEI, like both internally and externally? What are some of the things that that we look for in organizational leaders to sort of really show that that commitment does exist? Yeah, it is essential. This piece that you've pulled out of the book there about listening to what we do not know, to think in questions, because oftentimes when we hear something that's unfamiliar or unknown, we discard it. We, we say, oh, that's, that's bogus. That's ridiculous. What dialogue asks is to think in questions. What about? How to? When might that be true? What might, and that's the beginning of this work, um, especially for the leadership to, to be curious, to be curious, um, into constant, and not in a way that tries to take someone down, but to be curious about what the relevance of what you're hearing and what you're seeing and the impact of it. And when we start to engage in questions and invite questions, we really are modeling for the others in the workplace that it's okay to be curious, that curiosity has a greater value often than sitting in a position or title as if one is all-knowing. So uh, so when you ask, so what are the things that can be done to express the commitment? I think for me, what is the most challenging about doing the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't one thing that we can do that says, okay, that's it. Each organization has to do its own work and assess where they have hit the mark and where they have missed the mark. Is it um, that you have diversity, but it's all in the lower ranks? Then you need to use data to help drive what you want to focus on. 
if you are an organization that the culture has been to avoid or not speak directly about um, missed opportunities or disparities, then the leadership has to begin to engage in those conversations about disparities. If there is a, um, a culture where people have triangulated and that blocks out others. So some people are in the know, but others are not. Then how can you widen that circle so that more people are in the know and have an opportunity for growth and expansion? So each organization has to do its own work and determine what its key measures and metrics are and how they will hold themselves accountable. And then it can be communication. When it's when the work is nebulous, ambiguous, not very clear, it's hard to measure its effectiveness and to really communicate a commitment. Yeah, accountability. I mean, I think it, it boils down to holding everyone accountable. We all have a level of accountability. Cheryl, you know, we're running um, out of time here, but I, I would ask you for this one thing. What what's one piece of advice? that you have for the listeners who are looking to begin their DEI journey? The one piece of advice I would have is to be emotionally courageous. That this work requires emotional courage. The willingness to be seen as not the um, most put together person in the room, the willingness to uh, apologize and to be human in an environment that hasn't always invited that humanity, the courage to be ostracized by your inner circle or to be excluded because you're considered to be too soft or too politically correct. Emotional courage will drive this work if we're willing to say, I'm going to do what I know is right, embrace those who are here and make opportunity for others to come in who haven't been here before and give people uh, the benefit of the doubt. Because oftentimes, as you know, Brian, with um, racial disparities, many times it's uh, people just haven't been given the benefit of the doubt. And oftentimes those people who are not given the benefit of the doubt look more like me, who are black and brown and female. So um, so this is the work, and it's, it's important and good work to do. I uh, have one particular client most recently where they went from hiring 5% people of color to 30% people of color just by simply changing and improving the processes for enrollment and application. Really, really powerful. Cheryl, I'll tell you, there's one there's one fact in the book that I think is important as we leave this audience um, and, and people go out and start to pursue sort of their own path to their DEI journey. And that is that um, you mentioned that conversations about race are challenging, not because of hostility, but largely because we are only 2% aware of our own biases. And so I would ask those that are out there who are listening to this to really think about that for a second. Understand what your biases are. We all have them. Uh, it's understanding them and figuring out how we work with them, which are the things that are really important in being able to make changes and for people to, to adjust the way in which they think and the way in which this situation and, and this topic um, becomes less 
of, you know, a separation between groups. And it really does get back to bringing people together, which is what we're out there trying to focus ourselves on. Cheryl, congratulations on the book, Divinity, Diversity, Dialogue. Just real quick, where where can our listeners find the book if that's something that they're interested in? It's accessible on Amazon and uh, there's the narrative and then a workbook to help people work their way through and group conversations on these topics to give everyone supports to do this work and become more aware of their own biases. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I obviously loved our conversation. Thank you for this work. It is such an important topic and we all need to have this as a focus in order for that change to take place. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Rowley, and that was another episode of The Big Rethink. Rethink.